Welcome to Totally Biased Media, the podcast where three brothers that know nothing about video games tell you everything they know about video games. I'm Jordan. My favorite game of 2023 was Sudoku. I'm Jason, and for every game of the year, there exists an equal, an under-champion, anti-game of the year. And I believe I am that game. I'm Jackson, and I don't know what the hell he just said. It's that time of year again, folks. The beginning. We're kicking off 2024 with a look back at the best of 2023, our hopes for the year ahead, and we pick the official Totally Biased Media Game of the Year. Let's get into it. The last two years, there were some real standout games. Um, you know, at the very least, there were a handful that we were all really, really into. And I think that 2023 has been absolutely packed with huge games. Enough so that I didn't really see a consensus coming out of this one. Yeah, because like the first year, good old 2021, when there were like three good games. That was the year that (laughs) the best game of all time came out. I know. Death Loop? <laughs> no, it was obviously It Takes Two. Uh, the game that got robbed for Game of the Year? By us. Not like the Game Awards, just by us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it yeah. was robbed from me by my two brothers, two <laughs> Judases. Hey, we all came to that decision together. Specifically, we put it up in the air, and we were like, okay, on three, all of us say our pick for Game of the Year, and we all three said Psychonauts 2. <laughs> You know, I, I always forget it was Psychonauts 2 it went to. I, I concede. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. And then last year was again pretty easy because both Elden Ring and God of War Ragnarok came out, which while both credibly big games, only one of us really loved Elden Ring, but all of us yeah. really loved God of War Ragnarok. So we went with that. Yep. This year, though, oof. Yeah, oof. this year there were so many games and specifically enough games where we each made our list of our favorite games and there was very limited overlap so this time around we decided we're going to go a little more numerical with our our decisions so basically each of us made a list of our top five games of the year and there was a point value associated with each of those picks so like our favorite game of the year got five points our second place four points so on and so forth so an unbiased third party <laughs> In this case, being uh, Abby, who is an editor for the podcast, took our list with us not knowing each other's list and compiled them by score for us so we can be sort of going through these games and seeing them for ourselves as we get to them. So of the 15 games, we know that there were 12 different games that appeared on our three lists. That says something about the overlap just on itself. Right. The fact yeah. that we got 12 games from three top five lists. Yeah, it's it's wild. So we decided that what we are going to do is we are going to take any game that scored at least three points. So that's our top threes and then any games that fall into a combination of our fourth and fifth spots. So after doing all of that stuff, we ended up with seven games we're going to be talking about. We don't know what games they are. We have some pretty good ideas. <laughs> But do we want to go through our reject bin? Just like list them off like real quick. Not not really say anything about them. Just a word for our heroes. (laughs) Yeah. So 
just to sort of throw some out. If we could license that uh, I Will Remember You song. <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. have it playing in the background. Yep. And then we, we slowly read through the list. <laughs> if yeah. I sing it really poorly, will we still get copyright striked? That does still count. We wouldn't get... No one would catch us because no one listens to our podcast. And it's not <laughs> like you would sing it so perfectly that uh, the apps would catch it. But... <laughs> I would rather not listen to you sing it. So no. No, you could do like an off-brand uh, one. It's like, instead yeah. of I will remember you, you go like, these games will be remembered. Because <laughs> you got to mix yeah. up the tune, too. You can't just change the words. Right. <laughs> you will uh, remember me. <laughs> um, this said, our, our reject bin consists of five different games. Uh, from last going up, we start with Resident Evil 4. Which Resident Evil 4, I feel like we should specify. It's so low on the list because all of us except one person agreed that we wouldn't put remakes or DLC on the list. <laughs> I'm that person. <laughs> that being said, I do think Resident Evil 4 Remake is one of the most fun games to come out of this year. And I'm not going to slight it, yeah. even though it is a remake. I just didn't <laughs> think it deserved the spot as much as a completely new story. Yeah, I guess we should so, have made this clear when we were talking a little bit earlier. But uh, at least for Jordan and I, we didn't include remakes or DLC. Because, like, even though remakes and DLC are both really good, and I think that some of our favorite games of the year were remakes, I mean, especially for me, like, Resident Evil 4, Dead Space Remake, like, incredible games. Yeah. Just not... I don't know. There, there's a different process, and I, I kind of look at remake games a little bit differently from, like, brand new games where you have to go through all of the different phases of you know, conceptualizing a new game, coming up with a cool idea. I think it's pretty easy to turn Resident Evil 4 into a good game because uh, while I haven't played the original, there's still plenty of people out there regularly playing Resident Evil 4, which I think says something right. about its quality. So like, yeah, if you're going to remake a game, then something like Resident Evil 4 is going to be like a surefire hit because it's already a good game. Yeah. We're not going to stop on all five of them on this at this yeah. pace, but personally, I think remakes and DLC, depending on what type of DLC they are, should count. Man, this guy would have loved to have been around back in the day of the uh, the expansion pack. Horse armor. <laughs> no, I'm more talking about like Command and Conquer getting like multiple campaigns after it released, stuff like that. Yeah, my game of the year is the horse armor from Oblivion. <laughs> Our number 12 game was Resident Evil 4 Remake. We had a tie for 10th place. Um, one was Final Fantasy 16. Great game. Ton of fun. Uh, it definitely has some major, major stumbling blocks, though, so that's why it's not higher. Our other game, the one tied for number 10, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Absolutely now, baffling. I assumed... <laughs> this one just barely missed being in my top five. Like So, Jason, it was only on your list. It was only on my list, yeah. And it was your number five. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that Tears of the Kingdom is great, and I, I totally get why so many people are making it a front-runner for Game of the Year, but I also understand why it didn't actually win Game of the Year at many publications. Yeah, <laughs> so. I'm, I've been pretty, I was pretty positive about this game on the podcast, but ever since it came out, I've been a lot more negative, and then for a while, I was weirdly harsh about it, but I think I've cooled my tone recently. Last time we talked about it on this podcast, you basically said that if it was on our game of the year list, that you would outright refuse. 
<laughs> I think I've calmed down from that. But I, I do recognize why people like it because crafting system or building system is pretty good. I personally just think it's too gimmicky for the world and I would much rather it just not be in this game. I think gimmicky is incredibly reductive. <laughs> I think that maybe this is one of the like, I'm not saying that Tears of the Kingdom should be Game of the Year. It only got one point, which tells you just from yeah. that alone. Like, it's not in my top four games of this year, which I think says a lot more about what was coming out this year than Tears of the Kingdom. I think oh, Tears yeah, of the Kingdom sure. is a masterclass of, like, interwoven systems. The fact that, like, every part of the game can be used in every other part of the game, like... I guess that was a weird way to put it, that. but like yeah. you can use all of the different runes in combat and they're not just things like mm-hmm. in Breath of the Wild, like, yeah, you could use all the runes in combat. One of them stopped enemies in their tracks and another one was a bomb. <laughs> but like <laughs> in Tears of the Kingdom, if you want to, you can just build a, a car that'll kill anything in front of you. Like, but you can also use those kinds of building mechanics to get around the map. You can use it to like solve puzzles everything in the game works so well with every other part of the game and i think that just the fact that it shares breath of the wild's maps holds it back for some reason in a lot of people's minds it's weird the the map thing is not what really holds it back for me it's it's fuse and build even though i think those are very cool concepts because i think the map the map from breath of the wild is just a lot more better a lot more better explored on foot and i think the building and fuse because of the existence of those combat difficulty was increased and i don't think you can really get through combat without using one of those at this point which were two things that made me like it a whole lot less uh but that's enough about this game because we said we weren't going to spend that much time on games i think that tears of the kingdom deserves it because i think that it's it it is I mean, like Jason said, it's baffling this game is so low, even as someone that made one of these lists. Like, back when Tears of the Kingdom came out, I had a hard time seeing anything else topping it for Game of the Year, and then it didn't even make my top five. So, right. it's just, this one's come a long way, but it's really not the quality of the game itself, in my opinion. It is the quality of everything else. Yeah, but I do think that, like, Tears of the Kingdom has enough special stuff going for it. I think spiritually it'll be the Game of the Year in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, I think it's going to have more staying power than a lot of the stuff that it beat it, in my opinion. Well, it has a lot more replayability. So, like, sure, a lot of other games that released this year that I thought were really good were really good because of their story, which makes them a lot harder to replay. While Breath of the, or Tears of the Kingdom, the building system is something that can always be played with to find stuff out. Like, when this game came out, people were finding such crazy things you could do with it, and it was oh, yeah. very incredible to see. Oh, yeah. The sandbox but, is absolutely wild. Yeah. Like I said, it's it's just a masterclass of both gameplay and just interwoven systems. I hazard to guess that like any other game from this year is going to be, I guess, copied in the way <laughs> that, uh, yeah. that Tears of the Kingdom is going to be. Uh, but our next game, also speaking to Nintendo... Pikmin 4, which was also another really good game that just, while it was really good, there was a lot of stuff that was just really, really good. So it did not quite make it. Talk about Cozy, Oh, yeah, I have though. no qualms with Pikmin 4. I, I adored it. It's just that, man, this year. 
Yeah, um, Jason, I, my... I agree with that. It is it gets game of the uh it gets coziest game of the year. <laughs> yeah. If we did any other awards other than just game of the year on this podcast, it would win some of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although this next game is one that uh I, I could definitely see being a serious contender there. Uh Super Mario Wonder. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I, this is without question the best 2D Mario since Mario Land. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's incredible. Or Super Mario World. Oh, it's, it's just like Mario Land. Isn't that a remake of so, Mario Two? Super Mario <laughs> World. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Super Mario Wonder is wonderful. Just, I I'd say it's very much up there as like a defining title of the Switch for yeah. sure. It's the only two D Mario game to release on the Switch, other than the re release <laughs> of New Super Mario Bros. U. Just and the wild. Switch has been out since twenty seventeen. All that to say, this is a very, very good game, and I really hope that this is a, a sign of what's to come for the 2D Mario games of the future. I mean, I think Nintendo knocked it out of the park this year. Oh, yeah. yeah very good year for them. If only they could get their Pokemon games to be anywhere near as good as every other studio <laughs> under Nintendo is putting out. Well, I think that that means it's finally time to get into our actual game of the year discussion. So from here on out, these games are a surprise to us as well. So I believe we have seven games we're going to be talking about. These are all the ones that scored at least three points in our, our total scores. Right. So, Jason, what is our number seven game? So there's actually a tie for number six and seven as well. Sure. Um, Dead Space Remake. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, kind of harking back to what Jason and I said where we're not doing remakes personally... That being said, this game absolutely ruled. I did not play the original when it was new, but I loved every second of the remake, and I really, oh, yeah. really, really hope we're getting a sequel in the near future. Yeah, I had a friend in high school that was just absolutely crazy about both Dead Space and Dead Space 2. Like, I had heard about these games. They were almost, like, mythologized, I guess. I think I use that word a lot on this sure. podcast. Someone should start a total, <laughs> like a tally. Um, yeah. But just, like... This game where I was hearing about it constantly, and every time I looked at it, it was like the coolest stuff happening on screen, uh, but I was just like, this <laughs> yeah. is a horror game. I'm not playing this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as the person that had it on their list, I do have to say it's it's just phenomenal. It's This was a very good year for the survival horror genre, and while I do like all the survival horror games I played, this is really the only one that I thought was outright scary and terrifying because the other ones like resident evil 4 like it's definitely i guess creepy but i in what i played there was never a point where i thought this is kind of scary well i mean resident evil 4 just the original one is kind of considered to be where the series made a big transition from survival horror to action shooter with survival horror elements i guess yeah, because it still has like resource management and stuff like that, but still some jump scares. Yeah, <laughs> but they're not really too scary or anything like that. While in no. Dead Space remake, oof, there's there's a lot of scary points in that. <laughs> I think that like Dead Space remake's biggest strength has got to be the the new map design that they've done, where it's like almost a Metroidvania with different interlocking pathways or interweaving pathways. You know, like, there, there's so many different ways that you can take from any one part of the ship to any other part, if you want to, where it just makes it feel so... It's so, like, wide and expansive, yet also, like, 
claustrophobic in any individual area. Right. Yeah, makes, that's a good way to put it. It makes the ship, the uh, the Ishimura, it feels like a real place in a way that I think very few other games of this type like <laughs> like. I, I think that that's a really hard thing to nail in a game. I, I think mm-hmm. that even looking at Resident Evil 4, a lot of those areas don't necessarily feel connected. They feel like video game levels, <laughs> you know? For sure. The Ishimura, yeah. like every part of it, it's it makes sense why it's there on the ship. It feels connected to every other part. There's really strong, like, I guess, design similarities. Like every area on the ship feels unique but also it feels like it's all part of the same ship. And then just, yeah. it's so creepy. And the the yeah. sound design, especially, I think is incredible in this game where the, you can hear oh, yeah. the creaking mm-hmm. of the ship. You can hear monsters in the, the, uh, the vents, you know, just waiting to jump out at you. And then I think the scariest parts of the game are honestly the ones where nothing does jump out at you. And it's just you sitting <laughs> yeah. there in fear because you're surrounded. This ship has more vents than any other ship in the world. <laughs> um, and they're yeah. all they're all big it, enough for a person to jump out of. <laughs> I, I think that this game does so much right. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's gorgeous, it's fun to explore. I, I think that the weapons are inventive and exciting, and I wish more games were willing to go were willing to take the big swings that this game does in terms of the, what you have at your disposal, because you know, it does feel like you're always running out of ammo and you're having to rely on, on making every shot count to get by, but there's still so many ways you can use the environments and there's ways you can kind of route enemies to go through dangerous areas, or you can, you know, cause explosions with stuff around the, the around the map. Like, the combat is always so inventive and it keeps you on your toes. And I just, I think this game was an absolute delight. Yeah. I would still say I preferred resident evil four to this game, but I do recognize resident evil four is very much a shooting gallery. And this game is very much a horror game. Yeah. Yeah, Dead space remake was kind of something I'd been looking for after playing, uh, the last of us games. Cause those do have, some pretty tense scary moments but it is definitely more action and story first and it really just made me want something that actually just was outright scary and terrifying and dead space really did that for me so that's why it made it on my list yeah it was also one of those games that i feel like really engrossed me like i was thinking about it constantly and i'm still really hoping that they'll do a dead space 2 remake even though I think the team is working on an Iron Man game, so any hopes of Dead Space 2 are pretty far off. Let's move on to number six, B. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What is the next game? This one, I imagine, came straight from your list. This one is Lies of P. Yeah. So I'm just going to sort of take a soapbox moment here, because I was the only one of the three that played this game, which I think is completely fair. I don't think it's a game either of you would have liked. But it's a game that surprised me in, like, the coolest way. So this game is very, very, very inspired by From Software's Soulsborne uh, style. It takes a whole lot from Bloodborne. Um, and I think that it it does that stuff really well. And I wouldn't necessarily say the game was that exceptional if it was just a good Bloodborne-inspired game. But I think that this game does enough stuff to differentiate itself that I I 
definitely still give it the props for just being so unique in its own identity. I I would say the best way to describe this game is it takes the best parts of a lot of different from software games. Like it's a very fast and fluid parry heavy combat system kind of like Sekiro and it has this sort of gothic horror vibe of Bloodborne. Um I think that choosing to set this with the backdrop of the story of Pinocchio is absolutely insane. <laughs> and I don't even necessarily know if I would say that was a good decision, but I think that they created an incredible combat system that created some incredible level design. It's so much fun to explore and so rewarding. They, they introduced this system where your weapon stats scale off of two distinct components. Yeah. I think this is the big thing I've heard about that seems really cool about it. Yeah. This is something I hope a lot more games try out in the future. So basically every weapon gets half of its stats from its blade and half of its stats from its handle. And you can mix and match those and upgrade those individually, like separate from each other, and then put them together into different combinations. So if like, say, uh, for example, um, pretty early in the game, you get this fire dagger. Uh, It scales off of like an elemental stat, where I was doing a build that scaled primarily off of a strength stat. So at first, I didn't really touch that fire dagger. But eventually, later in the game, you start to encounter a lot of enemies with a weakness to fire. So instead of respecking to make myself better with that dagger, what I did is I took that dagger and I put it onto a spear handle that scaled primarily off of strength. And then now I have a fire dagger on the end of a spear, which increases its range, increases its damage, and it makes it scale off the stats I need it to. And like you have that level of flexibility with every weapon in the game, barring a few like extra special ones you can't break apart. But because of that, there are not 50 weapons in this game. There are 500 potential weapons in this game. And they all feel different. They all have different stats. They all function differently depending on what enemy type you're fighting. Like, there is so much depth in just the weapons of this game that even if all of it was just a one-for-one from Bloodborne or whatever, this would still be really, really cool. But instead, this is a very unique game that just borrows a lot of really cool ideas from from software. I absolutely love it. I've already played through it in its entirety twice, working on a new game plus now. Like it is it is so much fun. The world's really cool. I'm really, really excited to see what it has coming for both DLC and a sequel. Uh spoiler <coughs> a little bit, this game sets up a shared universe yeah. of like literary classics. It I mean, it is still a tried and true souls like game. Uh, it's very, it's punishingly difficult. It has uh, this very small incremental upgrade system. It has these recursive maps that loop in on themselves. It's a lot of the things you'll see in From Software, but this setting, these enemies, these bosses, these weapons, they are very much its own thing. And I, I really, really love it. But I think we can move on to our next game. Honestly, I'm kind of surprised there's only two games tied for six. Are you sure there's not more? <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, just two for six. All right. Okay. Which, I mean, that makes sense. There's only three games of overlap in our top 15 games. Or, you know. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Okay. Our number five game of 2023 is. Wow. What do you know? Another one I could disagree with, but Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty. Ah. Uh, see, this is the one that I know. Um, If the whole reason that you can't include a, a, a remake is because of, you know, lack of new written stories. That's not what I said. That is one of the points that you guys have said, even if not on this podcast. 
Right, but it's one of many points. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. I'm not even going to discuss Update 2.0. I am just discussing Phantom Liberty because it, I don't know if I'd say it's the best story of any game I've played this year. It's close. It's one of the best stories in any game I've played. That's for sure. No, I mean, it looks um, really good. And like, it, I, I'm a big Idris Elba fan. <laughs> I don't um, think I've seen him in anything and just been like, he's the worst part of it. But Phantom Liberty is a action-packed, character and story-driven spy thriller that just feels like a different game than the rest of the story from Cyberpunk. Because, like, yeah, it is just the same systems and stuff at play, same progression and all that, but its story is, while it does tie into the main narrative, you can just technically just jump off at Phantom Liberty and play it there and you're fine. I don't recommend that because the rest of the game is good, but you can do that. I don't know the talk about it. That's <laughs> part of the issue. It's because it's weird to talk about because since I am basically just fully discussing the story, there's not much I can say without having spoilers, which, you know, if I was talking about the base game, I can still talk about, you know, combat systems and that sort of stuff. But this is just story. And it's one of the best stories of any game this year I played. <laughs> Basically, the whole concept of Phantom Liberty is uh, you. after you finish a certain story segment in the base game, you get contacted by a character named Songbird who has an offer on something to help save your life, which is part of the main story of the base game. So you take this offer and she sends you in the Dogtown, which is where almost the entire DLC takes place. There's a little bit outside of that. Dogtown, I but, believe, is a whole new section of Night City that wasn't available in the, yes. the base game. Or if yeah. it was, that it's been completely reimagined from the ground up. It takes place in a section of the city called Pacifica, which is supposed was supposed to be like a a playground for the rich. It was going to be filled with like these incredibly expensive like skyscrapers, giant malls, kind of a Coney Island type section. <laughs> But it failed miserably because of some of the like previous wars that happened in the lore. Dogtown is a section of that, which seven years ago during some operations didn't turn out well, and it's now controlled by this guy named Kirk Hansen, who is the main villain of this DLC. There's a lot more at play than what you think, because you go in thinking this is a mission to save the president who has crashed down in their plane into Dogtown, and you need to help her get out of the city. But it becomes so much more than that. It turns in a way that I wasn't expecting, but I was glad it did. Because while I did like it when it was just like, save the president, I wasn't too engrossed in it. But what it becomes is so much more than I ever could have thought. And that's the point where I feel like I can't really talk about it. Then it does get pretty spoiler heavy. All right. Something I've heard a lot of people talk about on the internet about Phantom Liberty. Well, you know, I'm just going to pose a question to you. Do you remember Idris Elba's character's name? Solomon Reed, yes. <laughs> I've seen so many people talk about this DLC, and almost all of them say that they can never remember his name because they always just called him Idris Elba. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do get that. Um, but yeah, that that's another thing I've seen. One of the big complaints I've seen is that you don't get to be like as close to these characters as you do in the base game. All the characters you're interacting with are... One, the president, who is a politician. They're all the president? Well, one, one is <laughs> the president, who is, you know, a rich politician, and you're supposed to be, like, a low-life mercenary. 
And then the other three characters you're interacting with are spies for the government. So when, when you say president, they're all very, do you mean president of the remnants United of the United States? States or okay, because yeah. Night City isn't part of the United States, so like no, he's not yeah. necessarily tied to the whole corporatocracy yeah, she, of Night City. Right. Yeah, she is the president of what is now in the fa- in the cyberpunk world, the new United States of America. And she, you know, she crashes down into a place that she has no jurisdiction over. So you got to be real, uh, real careful with what you do. So let's let's take a break from our our list here for a minute and kind of look ahead to 2024. So it's certainly not the same slew of huge games that we saw in 23. But I think there's still some some stuff there that that has me excited. Uh, looking at a full list of the games coming this year, there there were definitely some that I you know, I, I'd kind of forgotten about or didn't realize were as close as they were, but we're going to stop and talk about some of the ones we're most excited for. So Jackson, you want to kick us off? So I have two games on here because they're both ones that I don't really have much to say about. And there isn't really any game for 2024, except for one that we'll talk about in a second that I'm actively looking forward to. These two are more of games that I'm just very interested to hear more. Uh, The first one of those is Avowed, the new fantasy setting game from Obsidian. You know, they made uh, Fallout New Vegas, then Outer Worlds, then Pentiment. That was that was last year, right? Pentiment. Yeah. I'm weird with Avowed because there's a lot of stuff in Outer Worlds I like, but a lot of stuff in that game and even the stuff I do like, I think needed a lot of improvement. I, I think they have a good groundwork for Avowed, but... I'm not super excited for it or anything, but I do really want to hear more because I think Obsidian still has it in them. I just think Outer Worlds wasn't great, even still good, but I, I think it just could have been a good bit better. So I'm just excited to see if they really up that for Avowed. I really liked Outer Worlds, so I'm pretty excited for Avowed, but I feel like it's mostly just on the backs of I like Obsidian as a company. <laughs> I just I like all the games from Obsidian that I've played, even the stuff that I don't necessarily love the gameplay of, like the Pillar of Eternity games. I still play them and I'm like, dang, I really like the way this is written. I don't know if I would necessarily say Obsidian is one of my favorite developers because I don't necessarily feel like on the gameplay front they really excite me in the same way that a lot of other Mm -hmm. developers do, but... I don't think I've ever played an Obsidian game and had any complaints with the writing. I mean, it has to be one of the most amazing writing teams and planning teams just in gaming these days. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it, it's an incredible company and I'm willing to support just about anything they put out because as of yet, they haven't put anything out that's disappointed me. That's yeah. it. I haven't played Grounded. <laughs> I have played that actually. I forgot about that. It. I played it <clears throat> excuse me i played it i think when it was still in early access i did like what i played i do tend to have a sort a little bit of a soft spot for that genre of like the survival crafting type game because like i'm a big minecraft fan i uh, really liked what i played of subnautica and ground it was i i liked it i never played it once it was fully released i don't think who knows i may have been playing it in in its full uh full build yeah, not he, sure. He can't keep track of time. He might have played it last week. He wouldn't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but my my next game that I will talk about is, which I have even less to say about this one because it was only revealed not long after Jedi Survivor came out last year. Yeah. Um, and that is Star Wars Outlaws. That is the new open world Star Wars game being made by EA Massive, which they made. They originally were big for. Um, I almost said Dishonored for Division and Division Two, uh, but more recently made. Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. So, wow, it's you're not a weird selling me one. on this game. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why this is a weird one because like everything about it looks too good to be true. Right, every single thing about it. Yeah, like that trailer that they showed off. It looked really good. That's not what the game's gonna be. <laughs> no, and that's no. that's why I'm very skeptical of this one. While I am excited because it's a good bit of what I've been wanting from Star Wars. I want a removed from like jedi order and force stuff um type of setting and a lot of space exploration sort of stuff and like this one excuse me this one is confirmed to have like space combat and stuff like that and unlike uh, a game from this year about space you can actually fly to space (laughs) (laughs) well you don't know that i feel like we would have said that about starfield a year ago well we we have seen that in they they show that off in Star Wars Outlaws. That was that trailer was a lie. That game is not going to be anything like that trailer. It might as well have been CG. Yeah, it's I if if it plays like that trailer indicates this game is going to be incredible. I just I think that that was a hyper specific very 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 fine-tuned display that isn't actually indicative of what the game will look like, what it's going to feel like. I think it's going to be much uglier and it's going to have weird draw distance issues. And like, like I think that there are so many things that Ubisoft just has not gotten right before that. I don't think they're going to suddenly fix in a game that was made in this short of a time frame when their team is pulled to like five other games recently. Right. Which like <laughs> so. I also get nervous about any Star Wars project that focuses on the outer rim and like kind of away from the the stuff going on with the Empire. Because I think something that we've seen is that the stuff with just the rebels versus the Empire is really good. But as we've gotten more Star Wars stuff, I've kind of come to realize that there are very few pe- very few people who can actually write like an interesting and compelling <laughs> average person's experience in that world, I guess. You know, like when I think of good Star Wars, Knights of the Old Republic 2, that one's made by Obsidian, uh, and Andor, right? And then I think of like the original trilogy. Every other Star Wars project has been like at least kind of bad. Mandalorian started good, but then they kind of forgot what people were actually interested in. and they Yeah, that most recent season of Mandalorian was not very good. I think that Dave Filoni especially is looked at as like the savior of Star Wars in a lot of ways because of some of the stuff he did with the Clone Wars. And I'm not saying that Dave Filoni is necessarily bad at what he does. Uh, I am saying he's kind of overrated and he wants to take Star Wars in a direction that is really boring. <laughs> uh, but back on Star Wars Outlaws itself, I, I'd like for it to be good. However, I I think there are some issues. So I don't think it'll be great. I, I just, I want to hear more. <laughs> I am excited. Vampires, The Masquerade, Bloodlines 2. I don't know if it's actually going to come out this year. 
I, I mean, I'm pretty sure its original release date was set for like 2019, and then it got delayed to 2020, <laughs> and then 2022, and then 2024, and it's probably going to get delayed again. Maybe never going to happen. Probably just vaporware at this point. <laughs> yeah. But I, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 1 <laughs> is one of those games that when I went back to it, I just couldn't understand how a game like that came out in 2004. I mean, it's very much like, I'm going to bring it up again, Knights of the Old Republic 2, where it's just a game where the writing the writing is so standout and entertaining, as well as like the vast majority of situations that you encounter in the game, there are like 50 million ways to solve it, and it can be based on what type of vampire you are, it can be what how your stats are distributed... Like, there is so much that this game takes into account and lets you do. And that's by 2004 standards. I don't necessarily know if Vampire Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 1 would hold up the same way if it released exactly as it was, just with better graphics and whatnot now. But I think that it made a promise (laughs) of such a good game and I've been waiting for a sequel to it for so long that I just really am excited for whenever it actually happens. I'm kind of worried that it's gone through so many developers, it's been delayed so many times, that it's just going to release in a state that it's going to be like a mess, like cyberpunk. You know, something that isn't what people really wanted in the slightest. But... I feel like the original game was so good and so much fun. And if we could get another game that's just like that now, but, you know, with modern enhancements, like, it'd be incredible. (laughs) I never played Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines and know literally nothing about it. So, like, what what is it? It's like an action RPG um, where your character is a vampire. vampire? Yeah, I mean... I looked at my list from last year and I was like, I'm not good at picking them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So just pick one that's probably not coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to be a little bit safer. Uh, My other most anticipated game of the year, it's uh, Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League, just like it was last year. I'm excited for this game because I want to be Captain Boomerang and use a shotgun. His iconic (laughs) weapon. Yeah. I really love, you both do this thing, but you do it in opposite ways. See, Jackson will be like, I don't have much to say about this, and then talk for 15 minutes. And Jason, you'll talk for 15 minutes and then say, well, I didn't really have much to say about this. (laughs) Yeah, I just like to hold it out till the back, till the end. (laughs) I actually don't have too much to say about mine, other than it looks really, really, really cool. 15 (laughs) minutes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Probably my most anticipated game is Rise of the Ronin. It's a uh, very fast-paced uh, samurai. I don't. I don't even really know what the vibe is in a lot of. Well, see, it it's not samurai because it's a ronin, right? It's it, but it's a very similar vibe. It's a very fast-paced action game. Lots of sword play, lots of parrying, but it also has some pretty cool gimmicks like uh, how you traverse and you have some cool you know, equipment that helps you get around faster and that can spice up combat. I just think it looks really, really fun. I don't know that it's necessarily bringing a whole lot of like super exciting stuff to the table, but I I do think that everything I've seen of it, it it looks, 
it looks incredible, visually beautiful. I think that it's you know it's Team Ninja developing it, and I think they have consistently knocked it out of the park. Um, so I'm I'm really excited to see where this one goes. Every trailer I've seen for it has me that much more excited. It's only a few months away, so I think that we'll have a pretty good idea about this one pretty soon. But I, it's certainly the one that every time I think about it, I'm like, oh yeah, that one's this year. So I'm really excited to see where that one goes. There are a lot of games, though, that, like I said at the very top, there's a lot of games this year that excite me. But I do think it's a lot of stuff that is sort of more tailored to what I'm interested in. I think that there are a lot less games coming this year that are going to be like huge cultural shift type of games. We're not going to have a lot of Baldur's Gate 3s and Tears of the Kingdoms and you know, nothing like last year with like Elden Ring and God of War Ragnarok. But I think we're going to see a, a steady stream of good to great games that have decent success. Yeah. Whenever <laughs> yeah. I look at like the release schedule for 2024, I see a lot of stuff that like I think will be good. Things I'm going to enjoy. Dragon's Dogma 2, Black Myth Wukong, Prince of Persia, Princess Peach. Like I'm excited for all those games, but I don't necessarily feel like any of them are going to be exactly what I'm looking for. Incredible stuff. I'm excited for Persona 3 Reload, but that's a remake, so yeah, you know how I right. feel about those. That's even how I feel about the stuff that I put on like my most anticipated games. Right. Now, all of this is to say we're not really discussing the elephant in the room. <laughs> I, I can say with confidence that the culturally most anticipated game of 2024 is Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Mm -hmm. Like, and I think, and I think for me personally, it's my most anticipated game too. Me but too, I would say, sure. I would say across all gamers, that is probably the game, the one that everybody is is really really looking forward to. I was excited for it, but honestly, kind of lukewarm. And then I saw that trailer and. Oh boy, Whew. Oof. that's that's a game right there. Yeah, yeah. Final Fantasy VII Remake, I think would say there's a good chance it's in like my top ten of all time. So I'm really looking forward to Rebirth. I'm just excited to be able to explore that entire world because there were so many promises about the world made in Final Fantasy VII Remake. Midgar is just a small portion of this giant world. And I don't feel like the the world that you're going to be able to explore is going to be like significantly bigger than Midgar, but it's going to feel more expansive. It's going to be a lot more varied, like environmental wise, the ways that you can get around riding a chocobo and climbing up a sheer cliff face wall, taking my good friend Barrett on a date to the Golden Saucer. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff they showed off that makes me very excited. I think that Final Fantasy VII Remake was a, a really, really good proof of concept. Like, I think the con I think the combat was great. I think it was a, a, I think they did a lot of really cool stuff with sort of the visual liberties you have to take when you take a game that for that far forward. And I think that overall, it was a great experience as a one-time thing. I do think that the game is a tough replay. I am in the middle of a replay now, and it's just so linear. You're just spending so much time walking down corridors, getting into the same fights until you get to the next chapter. Like, I think that it worked super, super well as a one-off thing, but it's not necessarily one I want to revisit. But everything I've seen about Final Fantasy VII Rebirth looks like it's fixing those things first and foremost. Yeah. This game is open and expansive and beautiful. There's so many different environments we've already seen. There's so many different little you know, niche elements that are being thrown into this, like 
elements of the game that are being expanded upon or things that are uh you know like mini games and weird other stuff and i'm just really excited to see how it all plays out and i'm also just so fascinated by this whole final fantasy 7 remake project because final fantasy 7 remake was not even the first third of final fantasy 7 as a whole it was closer to like 20 percent of the game i don't know the talk about it because i think even if you haven't played it by now you still shouldn't be spoiled about it it's a very different type of remake right i mean it's i mean it is i mean it is a literal sequel it is not a remake like it is i mean the events of final fantasy 7 have already happened whether it's in another universe or time is cyclical or something the events of final fantasy 7 have already happened leading into 7 remake so i mean this isn't a traditional remake in any stretch but what i think i'm most excited about with rebirth though is the fact that it is going to be tonally a completely different game than remake was so everything that happens in midgar in the original game is very dark and gritty and serious and it has this like very uh this brutalist architecture and this is like a capitalist hellscape type of thing and then you move on into this more open world where there's more lush greenery and wildlife and things are prettier and your companions are a robot cat and a child It's just like everything that happens after the point that Remake stops is a completely different game. And I'm so excited to see how this game captures that. Mm-hmm. I, like I am absolutely thrilled we're getting this game at all. And I, I fully suspect it is going to be even bigger than we're anticipating or most people are anticipating. <laughs> Final Fantasy VII Remake slash Rebirth, whatever the third one's called. They're not remakes. Like... <laughs> They, I, I can't see a world where this game would not be eligible for my game of the year because... Oh, for sure. Like, it takes a lot from Final Fantasy VII, but it takes significantly more from Final Fantasy VII, throws it away, and goes back to the drawing board. <laughs> You're right. This is Final Fantasy VII in setting and character names. Yeah. And beyond that, it's basically a different game. An entirely new game in the world of Final Fantasy VII. Okay. Well, 2024 has got a lot coming. You'll definitely be hearing our thoughts on all of these games and many, many more. But let's get back to 2023. Jason, what is our number four game of 2023? My dude, I don't know how happy you're going to be about this one. But next up, Sea of Stars. Yeah. So this is my personal pick for for game of the year. Now, I recognize that this game did not have even the slightest chance of being the TBM game of the year, and I'm completely fine with that. The reason this was my personal pick is because it's a combination of two of my absolute favorite things in the world of video games, and I think it does both of them exceptionally. So in terms of visual style and storytelling and narrative, like everything about this game's personality is pulled directly from early to mid 90s jrpgs chrono trigger final fantasy 6 like the the types of games that i think are in a lot of ways the height of gaming like i think that those were games that told stories in such fun and unique and exciting ways it takes everything about that style of storytelling and it combines it with another thing i absolutely love which is this turn-based action rpg combat Something like you would see in Paper Mario or the Mario and Luigi games. I think that 
there are very, very few games that capture good turn-based combat better than Paper Mario and Mario and Luigi. Yeah. And this game, not only does it pull from two wells that are my favorite elements of gaming to begin with, it does both exceptionally. I think that this world and these characters are incredible. This combat is so much fun, and it only gets better the further you go in. And it does such a good job of consistently refreshing the ideas about what motivate both of those things. And I just... For someone that has my specific interest, there are very few games that can top this one. That being said, I recognize those are both very, very niche ideas. Like, those are two elements of gaming that have kind of been left in the past for a reason. But, for me personally, this game hits literally all the highs. I, I think that it takes some narrative swings that are that, that are really, really bold, but still pay off in some really, really great ways. I think that every time you learn some new move or ability in combat, it completely changes the game in the best possible way. Like, this game at the beginning and this game at the end are basically indistinguishable. Or not indistinguishable. What's the op- The opposite of indistinguishable. Distinguishable. <laughs> they are... <laughs> well, no, you know what I mean. Like, like they, they don't even look like the same game anymore. Yeah. Like, the moves you are doing later in the game and the types of enemies you're fighting are just so phenomenally different than what you start with. I like what I played of it. I I got several hours in and like I do really enjoy the different characters. I like the cooking mechanics. Like I think there's a lot of really fun stuff. I think it's a beautiful pixel art game. Like it looks really good. I think that the combat's really fun and like kind of the I guess the emphasis on using different types of attacks to kind of weaken the enemies as you're fighting them and kind of positioning enemies to make sure that you're able to hit them with your multi, you know, area attacks is really fun. Um, I don't know. It just, it didn't really grip me the same way that, I mean, like I liked it more than I liked it a lot more than I enjoyed super Mario RPG remake that came out this year, but I had a hard time sticking with it. And I think that it really does just come down to, I never really got into those like JRPGs from the, the mid nineties, you know, stuff like Chrono Trigger. It's kind of a blind spot in my gaming catalog, I guess. You know, it's just mm-hmm. it's uh, something that I never really messed around with much. I always saw it and I was like, oh, that looks really interesting and really cool. But like, I barely even played Final Fantasy VII, the original one. Like, <laughs> right. Like, I played yeah. a lot of RPGs from like the 80s and then a lot of them from like the early 2000s and onwards. But just the 90s is kind of a blind spot. And I think that so much of Sea of Stars is kind of calling back to those RPGs of the 90s. Yeah, it, it's just it didn't quite grip me the same way that it, that it did you. I, I do think it's funny, yeah. too, though. <laughs> like, there were some legitimately yeah. funny moments that happened in the game. I like the uh, the pirates that you encounter in like the third town. I, I will say I think the game's two biggest weaknesses. And one of these is a glaring issue that I think is is where a lot of people's problems happen this game it starts very slow like it's very exposition heavy i would say the first hour you're probably only actually playing for like 15 minutes of it the rest of it is just reading dialogue and like the characters moving around on their own explaining how everything works i think that that should have been sped up significantly and i totally get why people don't even make it through like the beginning of the game because of that but the bigger the bigger problem, I think, for me, and I think that why a lot of people fall out specifically like seven or eight hours in, is 
there is a layer to this game that completely turns it on its head. Like thematically, gameplay wise, like there is such a giant tonal shift in this game about halfway through that not only does like the vibe change, they actually change the UI, the background music, the like the the color overlays. They change all of that stuff because this game goes through such a giant change that nothing from the beginning of the game fits anymore. Like this game, it becomes a completely different beast. And I think that that change at least should have been alluded to earlier in the game. Like when it happens, it's like a major heel tone moment, which is very cool and you don't see it coming. But I think it should have happened earlier or at the very least, it should have been sort of built up to a little bit. Because I do think the game starts to lose momentum between like a quarter of the way in and halfway through if you don't know what's coming. For me, I think the combat carried me all the way through. Like I never felt that. But a lot of other people's opinions of the game seem to be it starts to lose steam a little too early and they don't make it to that major shift that happens about halfway through. This game probably has one of the most emotional moments I've ever seen in a turn-based RPG. Uh, maybe since Aerith's death in the original Final Fantasy VII. Like, it, it is a gut punch that you would have not expected from a game that is, at least in the beginning, so bright and cheery and upbeat. And it it is not it does not hold back on the emotional moments when they finally start to happen. I mean, it, I feel like the uh, there's definitely some alluding to some major something going on. I just didn't right, necessarily right. because like when you interact with the previous people or, you know, like your mentors kind of uh, from when you were a child in the game. There's something sketchy happening there. Yeah, they're cryptic. They're cryptic in an obviously our organization is corrupt kind of way. Yeah. But it's really way bigger than that. From what you're saying, it kind of like affects the game a lot more than I necessarily would have expected. I kind of expect like a heel turn of just like, oh, actually, you're the bad guys or something. But I don't know like how much. It's not that. It's more like uh, this game is bigger than you're expecting in a way you're not expecting this is a like in the beginning it's a very tried and true fantasy story like clearly there is some corruption within this organization that you represent but like your hero is out there to fight these big bad monsters and it gets into some dark and serious stuff and it uh the the scale kind of it goes up in a way you're not expecting um, like, for example, you probably haven't even gotten to the point where they've even discussed what the Sea of Stars is, because the Sea of Stars is not just in reference to outer space. The Sea of Stars is like a, almost like an eldritch kind of concept. Like, it, it gets into some, like, time travel stuff and some multiverse stuff and specifically some, like, darkest timeline stuff. And it goes a lot of directions you would never expect. And it does so in a way where it's just not what the the game is not. The game does not end the same thing it, it begins as. Like it is a, it is telling a much bolder story than it initially lets on. Where at first it feels very like like a happy go lucky RPG about some friends going out to to do good in the world, and it ends a lot more existential than that. 
I mean, you can definitely tell, I think, even thematically, that there are some darker undertones just from the fact that, like, your companion straight up loses his eye pretty early on. Yeah. In just, yeah. like, a random monster attack. Those kinds of things become more common as the game goes on, too. Like, it's it's almost like, at first, it wants to throw the severity in your face as kind of like a shock prop. Mm-hmm. But then as you get further into the game, that, like, that more twisted side actually becomes the norm and then the happy-go-lucky stuff kind of becomes the stuff that's thrown in your face <laughs> uh in in a you know in retrospect so just it's a really great game i'm not like if you hate turn-based rpgs or you hate like these older linear jrpgs it, it's not gonna work for you but if you are at least accepting of those things, you should definitely give it a try. Especially considering that it's it's on Game Pass, it's on PlayStation Plus. It's only like twenty bucks to get a new copy. Like this game is it's it's available on every platform you could want to play it on, and it's not that expensive even if you have to to pay for it. So I would definitely, definitely, definitely recommend it if you don't, you know, despise turn based combat or some JRPG tropes. Okay. What's number three? Number three, I guess we can just call, you know, this little block here, this is our indie block, because next up we got, I'm guessing a game that was pretty decently mid-tier on Jackson and I's list, which is Dredge. Yeah. Dredge, it's basically your cozy little fishing game where you arrive in a small town and you're sent out to become a fisherman because it's your dream or whatever, and yet you take your little fishing boat out and you want to catch fish, and... Uh, but then there's a uh, there's a little twist to it in that uh, you live in a world of eldritch horrors where there are monsters underneath the depths that are lurking and are planning your demise at any given moment. <laughs> Rather, not planning your demise. Monsters so inconsequentially large <laughs> or inconceivably large that anything that you could possibly be doing in the ocean is essentially inconsequential to them. <laughs> yeah. So So basically, the way this game kicks off is... It's a short little cutscene of you driving a boat on the water in a bad storm when something attacks you. Then you wake up, no memory of what happened. All you know, you got to get out there and fish, man. You better get out there and catch, catch the waves and catch some fish. Everyone you talk to is like, I would not be on the water if I was you. It's a really yeah. dangerous place to be. Uh, everyone else that's ever had your job has died. Yeah. Um, but you just love fishing so much. You got to get out on those waters every day. Yeah. Then a little bit in, you get this strange letter. It tells you to go to this island. You go there and you meet this man, weird old mysterious dude. And he's like, I have some stuff I need you to get. <laughs> and then he gives you the, I guess, the, the, the title thing. I don't know. He gives you the ability to dredge. <laughs> um, and that really kicks off the game. You got to go around to some islands and you're fishing all the time and each island's got like its own little thing you need to do there that will lead you to getting one of the things for this dude named the collector that's basically the main premise a lot of fishing too a lot lot of fishing yeah the basic premise of the game or uh, the, the basic gameplay premise i should specify is just going out and fishing and upgrading your boat with the different materials that you're able to catch uh or Rather, you know, selling your fish so you can buy new materials, so you can buy new rods and stuff like that, and then 
while you're doing that, you also want to try dredging up stuff from the depths, you know, upgrade materials or story materials, like Valuables maybe someone sell. lost a ring or something like that, and they yeah. want you to get it for them, that kind of thing. You know, as you're fishing, there's a chance that maybe instead of catching a normal fish, you're going to catch a fish with, you know, seven eyes that can see into another dimension. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, if you stay out too late at night, you might get eaten by a giant fish that to protect its home. <laughs> I don't really, there's yeah. so much going on. Um, and then there's also, I think a big thing is this game has a sanity mechanic in the right. same kind of style as amnesia where the longer you're out at sea without sleeping. And especially the longer you are in the dark where you can't see around you and strange fish might bump against your boat, stuff like that. And the more strange things that happen, the more you're, insanity fills too yeah yeah as your sanity meter rises more strange things happen and those strange things cause your sanity meter to drop you know rapidly you kind of need to balance the fact that there are materials that you can only get at night there are fish that you can only catch at night fish that you might need for a mission like someone might ask for a specific fish that's only available in the middle of deep waters late at night so you have to kind of manage and plan out your trips and then on top of that this game has an inventory mechanic kind of like resident evil 4 where you only have a very limited amount of space in your inventory and every fish that you catch every item you pick up is shaped differently so you basically have like this grid inventory and you might catch a fish that is you know three blocks long and two blocks wide or something kind of strangely shaped, like you might catch an L-shaped fish, and you need to rotate things in your inventory, rotate the new objects, and try to fit them all in, packing them as neatly neatly and tightly as possible, while also managing the fact that, like, you have parts of your ship that need to take up space in your inventory as well. So you need Hmm. to keep in mind like what type of rod you're going to need for any given day based on, you know, where you're at in the world, what upgrades you've unlocked. It kind of layers on top of itself really nicely. And I don't know. It's just, everything just works together. Yeah. It's so weird because it feels like a nice and cozy game. I'm personally a big fan of just fishing, like these kind of indie fishing games where the fishing is mostly just, doing something simple like i don't want to go out there and play cabela's fishing 2023 or whatever the heck they're making these days but like this game has a lot of really similar mechanics and ideas to this other game i really enjoyed that came out a while ago uh it was called like moon glow valley or something like that let me look it up real quick moon glow bay where it's just like this really nice and cozy fishing game where you get to go out and catch fish and have a good time and most of the enjoyment is about exploring the world and then it has an eldritch horror aspect on top of it. It's just such a fun and unique game. And I think there are very few games that kind of nail that juxtaposition quite so well as Dredge. Yeah. It it also has just really good atmosphere to it. Everything always feels off. And you always are just a little uneasy when you're playing it. Because you don't know when something bad's going to happen. Like... Obviously, you know at night, yeah, you're going to run into more things. But things can still happen during the day, too, if you're not careful. So it just has this constant atmosphere of making you, like, look over your shoulder. It's so fun, too, where you'll just be, like, doing normal fishing stuff. And then suddenly you'll see, like, a giant monster is ramming at your ship. Yeah. Like, 
if it hits you, it's going to take out half of your storage inventory. So, you know, you're screwed and you have to suddenly go from this relaxing fishing to like, I need to get the heck out of here right now. Yeah. And then as someone that has beat the game, I can't say definitely worth it for the ending. Yeah. It's a game that I have not put much effort into beating. I've more just kind of enjoyed picking it up every once in a while, playing it for like a half hour, just kind of going out on a little mini expedition. So I, I don't think I've made too, too much progress in like the actual story, but even without that story aspect, it's just been a game that I've really enjoyed coming back to every once in a while. If you haven't played Dredge, check it out. I imagine it's probably the most obscure game on our list. Yeah, but, uh, my indie pick of the year that said I only played two indie games this year. This was such a big game. That was this is something that I really wanted to talk about when I was writing down my notes for Dredge was just like, this has just been a year that's been so chock full of these really good, really long AAA titles that I have not been able to put as much time into indie games as I definitely feel like I should have. And that's definitely been something I've kind of regret, especially, you know, kind of hearing about all the stuff I'm missed out on, on sea of stars that if I had just started earlier, I could have seen, Maybe could have changed my entire opinion of the game. Would have liked to have beaten Dredge. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of a shame. I, it's definitely something I kind of want to work to do better about. Maybe even, you know, try to do episodes on indie games moving forward. Just to yeah. give them a time to have their spotlight and also kind of get to experience games that are... I mean, the indie space is doing entirely different stuff than what the AAA space is doing. Well, all that said, I think it is time to jump into our next category which is honorable mentions. So these are all things that did not quite make our list, but we still enjoyed. I'd like to start with mine. So my honorable mention is Remnant 2. This year specifically was really, really good for Soulsborne games that are not made by From Software. (laughs) There were four of them that I would say all fell in the good to great range. What's the fourth one? I, I know this, Liza P, and um, Wolong. What's the fourth? Uh, Lords of the Fallen. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Remnant 2 is certainly an anomaly because it's a shooter first and then has some of that Souls-like stuff in the back end. And I think that it has such a good idea in terms of the progression and how the world works. And a lot of it's procedurally generated, but it's really well made to the point where it doesn't always look procedurally generated. And I think that the way it it works in sort of innate replayability into its initial systems is really, really cool. And this game is chock full of stuff to do. Uh, that being said, I don't think it necessarily... It's, it's not always an even ride. Some areas in the game are much more enjoyable and much more varied than others. Some of the bosses feel just flat out unfair where others are just pushovers. I I think that there is a version of this game that with some minor tweaking is an honest-to-God masterpiece, but I just think that there is some cruft they need to work out before you know it, it's really at that level. That being said, it's a great shooter. It's a great uh, Souls-like. It, it has so many cool ideas. It's built around co-op and replayability, which are you know obviously great in and of themselves. So I just, I think there's so much here. Even if you didn't care for the first game and there wasn't really anything appealing about it to even try it in the first place i still think this game is worth looking into especially now that it's on game pass i just i don't know i really really dig it 
I just I don't think it was quite there to be in my top five just because I think it has some it has some glaring issues, but they don't sink the ship by any means. I'm sorry that we never played Remnant 2 with you. I would like to play it at some point. If it makes you feel better, I did download it and intend to play it with you. <laughs> it's just every yeah. time that it came up, we did something else instead. Yeah. It is, it's definitely <laughs> one from this year I feel like I've missed out on that I would like to go back and actually play at some point. Yeah. I actually kind of picked my game for honorable mentions, mostly just from the fact it didn't make it into our top seven or whatever. <laughs> like, it didn't get three right. points on our list, even though it was already on my top five list. Jackson, it sounded like you wanted to talk about yours first. Yeah, so I had a hard time picking honorable mention because there were four games specifically that I felt, I don't know, they were they were all games that like I liked or there was some stuff in them I liked or I felt were deserving of some sort of recognition. And those games were Jedi Survivor, Baldur's Gate 3, another one that I don't remember, and the one that I ended up deciding to talk about like halfway through recording this was Spider-Man 2 because I originally was going to talk about Baldur's Gate 3 because I I liked what I played but it didn't really grip me and I did not play much of it but I think that might be later on this episode not too sure so I decided I would talk about something else instead so Spider-Man 2 is what I went with because I'm a big fan of the first one Uh, I love that game one of my top five games of all time I've played it like Five or six times at this point. Too many times. That's that's too many times. You shouldn't play it that much. It, it doesn't need that many times. But because of that, I was real excited for Spider-Man 2. And I did really enjoy playing it. I thought there were a lot of good, like, new stuff they did. I really liked, uh, I really liked the new ability system that they added. Though I think, I'm, I was pretty skeptical about it at first. I thought the game was better when it was more about combos and having your gadgets, but I did end up liking the abilities. I felt like combat was greatly improved. Traversal, highly improved. Again, something I thought was going to maybe be a miss was the web wings, but I think they actually fit into the traversal a good bit due to the map being expanded in size, adding Queens and Brooklyn to it. And I think they also improved the open world a lot more. I thought the activities were a lot more interesting. I thought instead of them just immediately appearing on your map, I think having to like kind of look around for them was good. Um, I still feel like open world for that game still needs a little bit of help. So I, I think by Spider-Man 3, they're, they, won't, they probably won't like get it perfect to a T, but it'll be a lot closer. Yeah, I mean... I think that we all really enjoyed Spider-Man 2. I'd yeah. hazard to guess oh, that sure. most people that played Spider-Man right. 2 really liked it. And I think that in terms of gameplay, Spider-Man 2, I don't have any major complaints with. I think no. that every aspect of it, gameplay-wise, is much better than the first game. I think that the web swinging is faster. It feels more fluid. It's just yeah. more fun in general. You have more options. The web wings are a really nice and interesting like addition to that traversal. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, like, the combat feels better. It's faster. It's more fluid. You have more right. options at any given time. That is kind of part of my issue. I don't think you have as many options. Something this game gets rid of that I really like from the first game was the gadget wheel. Now, not every gadget in that game was great. There were two that I barely ever used: the uh, the concussive blast and the suspension matrix. But there are like six others that were basically 
my main ways of combat, like I would use pretty much all of them in combat. So I didn't, I didn't like what they did with the gadget system because they changed it to just four different gadgets that I didn't like half of. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear you, but there you have objectively more options in combat. There are like t- 12 abilities per That character. is true. Yeah, I just, I really like the gadget system. You only have those four gadgets and you can only use four of those abilities at a time, but like you can mix and match those four abilities any way you like. And then you also have an entire second character that has an entire new set of abilities. Yeah, and I get that. Like, I just, something I kind of think of a lot with Spider-Man is like, Doing cool stuff with the webs, you know, having like a web bomb or like, um, like a web trap of some sorts, which you don't, you just don't really have in this game, which I think were a big miss, like no impact web. I don't like We mentioned that that in the episode. That's just that it feels like for some reason they got rid of the more Spider-Man like gadgets just to replace them with gadgets that I guess they thought were better balanced. Yeah. And it it makes the gadgets a lot less interesting, even if like you do have abilities that kind of make up for a lot of that missing like instead of having impact webs when you're playing as symbiote spider-man you have an ability where you can just slam an enemy against a wall and they'll be stuck there yeah if they hit a wall they you know if they don't then they're just gonna hit the ground but that's it's the exact same way the impact web functioned Mm -hmm. it's just you can't really use it at will it works differently it's on a timer instead my my biggest issue with spider-man 2 was i i really liked the first like two acts of the game i thought they were pretty good i thought they did a good balance of like giving spotlight time to both peter and miles though i do feel like miles's story wasn't as connected to like the main threat going on and i wish it would have been more though i do like some of the stuff they did with him like for his stuff they just it felt very disconnected yeah and i never two is so short and yeah kind of lacking in major like character moments that it doesn't make act three feel earned and act three i there's a lot of story decisions in act three that i am not a huge fan of i still like playing it and i think all the voice actors still did a very good job of like making their character their character which was part of the reason i really liked the first spider-man and spider-man miles morales i just i don't like some of the story the decisions they did and I wish they wouldn't have made them. And I think if Act 3 would have been better, it, there's a good chance it would have ended up on my list. But sadly... I mean, I think my personal complaint with the story is just going for the cosmic side of the symbiotes. Where, like, I think that that stuff is kind of a little half-baked and not yeah. necessarily... I think that, like, the strength of Spider-Man 1 lied in its characters... And instead, they were like, well, instead of having like a lot of interesting character moments where the symbiote feels betrayed by Peter or whatever, they were just like, aliens, there's a bunch of them. Yeah. Fight the aliens. <laughs> yeah, I, they just, they made some weird decisions, but I still think it's a good game. It just, it has some big stumbling blocks, but yeah. Again, still still a good game, by all means. Spider-Man 2's biggest weakness is how good Spider-Man 1 is. Yeah. My honorable mention was actually a game, like I said, it was, it's already on my main list, but since it didn't make it into our, our you know top five, whatever, I want to talk about Pikmin 4. Because Pikmin 4, like we said earlier, coziest game of the year. It is such a fun and cute game, and it has such a nice energy to it that, like, 
every time I picked it up, I had a good time. I think there are very few games that I've played, even games that I ranked higher on my list where I didn't have a single bad moment playing it. Like Pikmin two or Pikmin four is that game. It's fun. I think that the puzzles are kind of, you know, interesting and unique and having to manage your Pikmin is a lot more fun with uh, all the different new types that they've brought in. I thought the nighttime mode stuff was kind of fun, even if I didn't necessarily enjoy it quite as much as like the daytime stuff. The, uh, the dungeons that you would go into and, you know, they each had their own puzzles in there. They were all kind of styled uniquely. Sometimes you would go into one and instead of just, you know, a dungeon to explore, it was like a head to head mini game against CPU. Like that stuff was fun. I really enjoyed Pikmin 4, which is a big surprise for me because I played Pikmin 1 earlier this year and like I liked it, but nowhere near as much as I enjoyed Pikmin 4. And like I played Pikmin 3 when it came out. I've played it again on the Switch when the remake of Pikmin 3 came out. And like I don't enjoy those games anywhere near the level that I enjoy Pikmin 4. It just feels like this is the game where it really clicked for me. Really, my only issues with it are that I'm done with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't have much to say about Pikmin 4. Um, I did sadly miss our episode for that because college scheduling, but it was really good. I really liked it. It. I was really looking forward to the episode because I really wanted to talk about it, and I haven't really played it since, so I don't, I don't remember a whole lot about it other than I really liked it. And I do want to play more. Pikmin 4 being as good as it was and not making our, you know, like actually getting a discussion slot in this episode beyond the honorable mention, like that says something about this year because I cannot think of many improvements that you could make to Pikmin 4. <laughs> no, it's, oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was I mean, it wasn't in my top five, but I mean, it was it was definitely in my top 10. And I mean, that's as someone that had not really ever played Pikmin before and I mean it still was that good so I think it does what it sets out to do almost flawlessly exactly. I'm not gonna say I love what its goal was all the time but I will say like what it is trying to do it achieves exceptionally well good game if you haven't played Pikmin 4 maybe beyond every other game on this list I think Pikmin 4 is a game I would recommend to absolutely everyone so yeah. if you haven't played Pikmin 4, get out there and play Pikmin 4. But I mean, I think that's unless you guys had anything else for honorable mentions. I, that's it I'm for me. Top two are our big two games of the year, which I heard we have a tie here. Is that correct? Yeah, we do have a tie for these. Um, interestingly enough, the tie is my fault. Uh, I also contributed to this. So I, I kind of assumed that it was going to be one of these two games as our number one, pretty much no matter what. However, in finalizing the list yesterday, I did move a game up a spot. Afterwards, I was thinking, like, I bet that will put it as a tie in the end. Because I suspect I know how these games fell on y'all's list as well. So, the number two and number one game of 2023 are... Baldur's Gate 3 and Alan Wake 2. The reason why this year wasn't uh, a standout is because of these two games specifically. So Alan Wake isn't even on my list. And Baldur's Gate isn't on Jackson's. And I think that that was creating enough of an impasse 
that it felt impossible to do this in a way that wasn't scored numerically. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> we have still arrived at that <laughs> same outcome in the end. <laughs> so It's not like I dislike Baldur's Gate 3 or something. I have enjoyed what I played. However, turn-based RPGs are not my thing, so I've had a lot of had a lot of stuff to get over with it, which has made getting into it very difficult. I don't think I've played more than 10 or 15 hours of it, and that's only like 5% of the game, if that. So I never felt like I could accurately put it on my list in any way. Well, I think for me, the the big thing with Baldur's Gate it's not it's not even that I've played a large percentage of it. It's the fact that every single thing I have I've encountered has had so much detail right. and so many different ways it could be handled. Absolutely. Like every interaction in the game can go so many different ways. And it's not just you approach an NPC, you can say a dozen different things and you go along your way. It's you say one of a dozen different things. And then that kicks off a chain reaction of 10 more conversations where you could say a dozen things there. And each of those lead to their own ends. And quests are set up in different ways depending on, you know, do you do you kill the bad guy? Do you capture the bad guy? Do you uh, just steal an item from them and leave? Like, everything you do in the game has actual consequences. We're only like three or four hours into our playthrough co-op together. And just about everything we've done so far has been a completely different way than I did it in my solo playthrough. Right. We've encountered people in different orders. We have handled situations differently. We have talked to different people and, you know, gone different directions with those dialogue, those dialogues. I think that Baldur's Gate 3's biggest strength is kind of the same thing as Tears of the Kingdom, where it's it's these overlapping systems and just how well the world responds to any given action that you take, right? It's not necessarily in the gameplay so much as Tears of the Kingdom, although like Baldur's Gate does have these like crazy emergent gameplay things, like you know the fact that you can like pick the lock into any given house or you know whatever. Like you have so many options of the things that you can do in the gameplay. You hear about those crazy stories like uh, when the game came out and everyone was talking about how the method for dealing the most damage with any individual attack was uh bugbear from the top ropes or whatever, where it was like <laughs> you pick up a crap ton of crates and then you have someone climb up to the top of the crates, wild shape into a bugbear, like you know, transform owl or owl yeah. bear. Yeah. Sorry. It's confusing. Cause they both end in bear. <laughs> but like you have someone turn into an owl bear and then do a body slam from the top of that huge stack of crates yeah. and deal like, a billion damage to an enemy. You can yeah. just one shot anything in the game. Like, yeah, that kind of thing doesn't come up in Halo, right? No. <laughs> and like, I really enjoy a good Halo game, but Baldur's Gate 3 takes things to just a completely different level than just about any game out there. And then on right. top of that, it has this crazy level of variety and also um, continuity, I guess, to the writing where characters that you interact with in Act 1 are going to pop up in Act 2, they're going to pop up in Act 3, and they're going to remember your interactions with them in those earlier acts. And that's going to affect how you play the game down the line. <laughs> Which I think that's yeah. part of the reason it's been hard for me to get into, because it feels like 
every little thing that I have to do has some sort of consequence, which is not something wrong with the game by any means. It just makes it very overwhelming for someone that is usually more into linear storytelling. But, I mean, like, I hear what you're saying where it can feel overwhelming, but you can just start the game over, you know, like. Right, but I don't want to have to start a game over. <laughs> I don't want to play. For, I don't. Yeah. I don't want to play for 10 hours and then like, I don't want to play for 10 hours and then have to start the game over because of something that I did like in the first hour. I That's not no, no, something. No. That's. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you start the game over because you get to a situation you don't like. I'm saying commit to what you've done. Like, if you make a bad decision, right. then, like, that's something you commit to. You finish the game or whatever. Unless right. you just really hate the direction it's going. Yeah. My then, issue is... If you wanted to play the game again later and make a different decision, then things might go entirely different. But that doesn't make one playthrough more valid than the other. Right? And that I don't have an issue with. My issue is just there's so many choices that... I never feel like I'm making the choice I should be making. Well, that's uh, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. Is like there isn't a right choice. There's no right answer. And sometimes a decision that you make and you feel like you're going to get bad consequences might be better than the alternative. You know, something that kind of comes to mind is there's a quest line really early on in Witcher Three because I don't want to get into spoilers for Baldur's Gate. There's a quest line in Witcher Three where you have a decision of whether you are going to free a spirit from a tree or not. And if you free the spirit, then it goes and it kills a bunch of bad guys for you and frees a group of orphan children who are being essentially like kidnapped by those bad guys. Right? And that sounds like a good decision. Like, oh, well, you know, that that's good. The thing is, if you free the spirit from the tree, it also kills all the town people in a nearby town. So like... Women, children, adults, like everyone in that town dies because of your actions. But the children are free. So like you've helped one group in a really meaningful way. And that's a group that you're going to see more often in the story than those townspeople. Like those townspeople only pop up a handful of more times. Whereas the the stuff that's going on with those children is the main plot. But just because you made one decision one time and it had these negative consequences, it doesn't necessarily mean that the the other option is better, right? <laughs> because like something bad happened either way or something good also happens either way. I get that. And it kind of incentivizes you in a future playthrough. You can be like, well, you know, what if instead of freeing those children and killing all the people in the town, I don't do that. Like, I help the people in the town, keep them all alive, and then find another way to free the children. Or I just accept that those children are dead. <laughs> and I, I think Baldur's Gate 3, like, the more options that you can provide along that line, the better. Because it makes for more varied discussions that you'll have with people. It helps shape your character, like, in interesting ways. I also think of, like, I wish that we had played around with it more. We had a D&D campaign, like a tabletop campaign, where early on in the campaign, my character got into a situation where he had to kill someone and then deeply regretted it for a while and was haunted by the person he killed for the entirety of the rest of the campaign. And like, I think that with a branching narrative is the closest that you can really get to that kind of experience in a video game. Right. And Baldur's Gate 3 
has a much stronger narrative than just about any other game that I've ever played because it does play around with that kind of idea. It's Baldur's Gate 3 is the closest that I've gotten to experience to that tabletop moment in a video game ever. Obviously, my gut says Baldur's Gate 3 is the better choice. I'm not completely closed out on, on Alan Wake 2. I, I want you all to try and sell me on Alan Wake 2. <laughs> I don't want to talk a whole, whole lot about Alan Wake 2 because that is just the last episode we did on the podcast. So it's still pretty fresh in our minds. Like, I do think we should go over it, but I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time with it. I think Alan Wake 2's biggest strength is just the fact that it pulls together so many different ideas from, at this point, a decade's worth of other games. And it combines them in interesting ways. The characters that you run into feel like they have been affected by the time between Alan Wake 1 and Alan Wake 2. And I, I know that that's kind of weird, but like when you get to the nursing home section in particular in Alan Wake 2, I think is really powerful because it pulls a lot of the game's themes and the ways that the dark place kind of affects people together in really interesting ways. Getting to see what happened with Symphony Weaver. I can't pronounce that. Symphony, Symphony Weaver. Cynthia? Yeah. Cynthia. Cynthia. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty Cynthia sure. Cynthia Weaver. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Like, I think the game showing you how they have been affected by the main storyline stuff going on. I don't know. This is kind of hard to talk about. And I feel like I'm, I'm already kind of talking myself. Into Alan Wake 2 is a ride, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think there are any other games out there that I've ever played that quite took me on the same kind of journey as Alan Wake 2 because it has these horror sections. It has these surreal moments, but then it also has a chapter where the plot of the first game is basically recounted to you through a musical with live action dance yeah. scenes going on in the background and the gameplay is basically set on a stage where you're you're kind of wandering around fighting enemies. It's unhinged in ways that I I don't think any other game that I've ever played has been willing to go to. To the point where I feel like Alan Wake 2 has a clarity of vision that no other game has ever. It had. very much feels like Remedy is not letting them not letting themselves be tethered to what they think is the best thing to do for the game. And instead, allowing themselves to do what they think would work for the game. I, I worded that in a weird way. I, let me yeah. let me remix that. I think that Remedy was willing to do not what was expected of the game, right. but what they felt was best for the game. Yeah. Right? Because you have these big storytelling moments where your character is effectively just kind of wandering through the woods aimlessly it all ties back into the story and how, you know, Alan Wake's character is trapped in the dark place. He's constantly writing and rewriting his way out. Alan Wake 2 is just, it's a hard game to talk about because a lot of the things that make this game really cool are its story, which a story is not really something you can talk about without spoiling. But yeah. Alan Wake 2 is still just... I don't want to say masterclass again, because we already used that term, but 
It's it's a master class. I don't think it's a master class anyways. I think it's a master class in storytelling. No, I I don't think that Alan Wake 2 is the kind of game that storytelling should be mirrored. Like I I don't think that this when you say something's a masterclass, like you're saying that other games should look to this and seek to kind of emulate its storytelling methods and the things that it's doing. And I don't necessarily think that's the case with Alan Wake 2. Like, I don't think that gaming is going to be a better space if they just embrace surrealness. If everyone that ever d- directs a game from here on out watches Twin Peaks weekly, <laughs> you know, before they sit down to write anything or approve anything. But... I mean, I do just think it comes back to Alan Wake 2 feels like the kind of game that a developer would want to make and be told no. And it's it's one of those things where I think it's incredible that it released in the state that it's in. That's that's more of what I'm trying to say. It's masterclass in storytelling. um, Real bad way of putting it because it's completely wrong is what I realized. It's and I'm going to need to actually listen to me explain this for a minute. It's a masterclass in how to develop a game because... I feel like a lot of big games these days are not doing what they want to do. They're doing what they think they have to do to either sell copies or get a publisher to produce it. While I feel like Alan Wake 2 is a good example of a developer just doing what they want to do. And I think that is what more developers should look towards. Alan Wake is definitely not for everyone because its story is very all over the place, not in a bad way, but in the fact that it draws from multiple other games before it. There is a lot of surrealism going on at any given time. And there's just a lot that kind of just doesn't make sense, but it's supposed to is the thing, which I think is the reason that it's not really for everyone because not everyone wants that. So I don't, I don't think you can really sell it to anyone. You can sell it to someone that likes those type of things. I think this is a game that Jackson and I played through and felt affected by the story that it was trying to tell. Mm -hmm. I think that we really enjoyed it. And I'm not trying to say that it's got the best uh, gameplay in any way. I think that the gameplay is vastly improved from Alan Wake 1. Still not incredible (laughs) by any means, though. Yeah, but it, it still has issues. I think that it's an incredible looking game, but I don't necessarily know that that's that big of a point in its favor because i think a lot of games this year look really good yeah like i think it has good art direction where's its influences on its sleeve right i mean you can't look at alan wake 2 without thinking of without thinking of twin peaks for one i mean (laughs) like even if you haven't seen twin twin peaks like you can tell how much it has kind of affected this surreal storytelling aesthetically i think it's a game that you play and if you really enjoy kind of a story that's willing to take you on a ride to places that you have not been taken by another game that you'll enjoy it. Right. I think that Saga and Alan are both really interesting protagonists. I think that their gameplay elements, especially, you know, Saga's got the detective board and Alan has his uh, you know, writing outline where you can kind of change the world around you by using those different keywords and the puzzles that you have to solve that kind of come up even though they're very straightforward puzzles, I think like being in that hotel and changing one of the words on your outline. And instead of just being a normal clean hotel, it turns into this crime scene where enemies are all over the place and the walls are spattered with blood. Like there's some really cool aesthetic things that it does 
like that. Yeah. Without getting into too many spoilers, like there, there are more crazy things that happen throughout. I think like the mix of live action and, you know, the, the computer generated graphics that they go through is really cool and well acted and well directed even like it feels honestly when you look at quantum break and it's kind of trying to come, you know, uh, mix television and video game gameplay together. I think Alan Wake two does that a lot better. And it's not because there's a television companion to Alan Wake two. It's because Alan Wake two tells these live action stories within the game while you're playing it without completely taking you out of everything to load up a video on some streaming service that doesn't even exist anymore. (laughs) Alan Wake 2 does a whole bunch of really good things that just aren't for everyone. It's a bunch of stuff that we really enjoy. And I, I think Baldur's Gate is the same way. It does a lot of things in really spectacularly good ways that just aren't for everyone. I think the circle of people that enjoy Baldur's Gate 3 is a lot bigger than the circle of people that enjoy Alan Wake 2. I do agree with that, which is... Okay, I want to test something here and see how y'all feel about it. I think these are both two incredibly good games that have done really good stuff for their medium. But picking one feels very hard because I feel like both are very deserving. And I think... Something we should consider. Boo! Is Boo. a tie. <laughs> Boo! No. I, I don't know. I mean, like, I already made my list, and I put Baldur's right. Gate above Alan Wake 2. So, yeah. <laughs> I've already laid out how I feel about these two games. <laughs> yeah, and Baldur's Gate was on my list, even though Alan Wake wasn't. <laughs> so. You know what was going to be an honorable mention for Jackson, and what wasn't going to be an honorable mention for Jordan? There's a lot of evidence pointing towards Baldur's Gate here. <laughs> I mean, oh. I like Alan Wake 2 a lot, but I do think that it is very much a niche game. Like it kind of fits into its own its own spot in gaming, right? And I also think that it kind of relies on you having played all of the other Remedy games. I think the reason I like Alan Wake 2 so much is because it takes aspects from Alan Wake 1. It takes aspects from from Quantum Break, you know, things from Control, and it puts them all together. It takes everything that I like from all three of those games, and it combines them into one package that I think really works. It's really entertaining throughout the whole thing. I think that, like, Alan's whole thing of being a writer is a really cool story element, and, like, affecting the story as he goes, the fact that New Game Plus is canon to the story of the game, I really like all those aspects. I like that kind of surreal weirdness. It's the same reason I like uh, Hideo Kojima so much, right? Because he takes what he thinks would be good in a game, and even though no one else in the industry is going to make a package delivery simulator, he made one because that was the basis for the story that he wanted to tell. Right. But at the same time, I think Baldur's Gate 3 has a really good story and really good gameplay. And I think Alan Wake 2 has a really good story and okay gameplay. And that's why I put Baldur's Gate 3 on top of Alan Wake 2 on my list. So it's it's the opposite for me, though, because I, I think they both have really good stories. I much prefer Alan Wake's gameplay over Baldur Gates, though. So what's the best turn based RPG that you've ever played? I'd say probably Baldur's Gate. All right. What's the best uh, third-person shooter you've ever played? 
probably Halo 2. And it's not Alan Wake 2. I mean, no, but... That's not a third-person shooter. But, like, you can say that you like the gameplay for Alan Wake 2, but I don't think that Alan Wake 2 made third-person shooters better the same way that I think that the overlapping systems stuff... I brought up uh, Owlbear from the top ropes because that's something you can't do in any other uh, turn-based RPG like that. That's unique to Baldur's Gate 3. That is so many overlapping systems working together to create something unique and weird. And I don't think that Alan Wake 2 has that kind of unique and weird gameplay. I think at some point we have to just call it. For me, it's it's Baldur's Gate with by a landslide. I will make the conceit. I know that a lot of the other games I really, really liked this year were not ones that you all cared as much for. But... I, I think Baldur's Gate was still something special. See, this is why I wanted to do a numeric system and <laughs> why I thought this would I thought it would prevent this problem. I'm gonna replay Baldur's Gate 3 one day. I Baldur's Gate 3, I think I've talked about it before, I think is gonna be one of those games like Fallout New Vegas where I keep coming back to it. I don't expect to come back to Alan Wake 2 after I finish the new game plus. Well, I have a car that I need to get fixed, so if it gets this episode finished faster so I can do that, Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> okay. Well, very unceremoniously, <laughs> congratulations to Baldur's Gate 3, the totally biased media's 2023 game of the year. Thank you so much for listening in the last year. We hope you keep it up in 2024. We're going to keep cranking out episodes for better or for worse. <laughs> um <laughs> If you would like to reach out to us, there are a handful of ways you can do that. First, on Twitter slash X, it's at, at TBMcast. Second, on Instagram, it's at Totally Biased Media. And you can also send an email to totallybiasedmedia at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us on twitch.tv slash totallybiasedmedia, where this year we're going to be streaming Metal Gear Solid. Uh, it's, it's the year of the gear until I come up with something better. <laughs> Year of the Gear, I don't know why I hear it, but I, I immediately, just when you said it this time, start thinking of drugs. It's just not a good name. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It's the Year of the Solid. <laughs> that um, sounds like poop. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Year I of- wish a Year of the Solid to everyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well... For the Totally Biased Media Podcast, I'm Jordan Walkup. I'm Jason Simmons. And I'm Jackson Walkup. And you just felt the bias. Thank you, everyone. Goodbye. Goodbye.